Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, episode 51, purely chronographic. Yeah, you know, this episode, Sanj, we are finally covering a watch that you have made uh, a lot of fun of. You've given me a really hard time about. And truth be told, I actually bought this in sometime in the beginning of COVID. And yeah. we're finally in a position to talk about it. Yeah, this is a long time coming. This is like a restoration. <laughs> so before I, actually, before I actually go into the watch, I'll actually talk about another watch. Um, so, okay, first of all, obviously, I'm talking about the Dugina, Dugina Sports Chronograph, the Lamania 5100 Chrono that I picked up. Um, but to really understand why I picked this random watch up, you really got to think of another watch. And what I really wanted to, you know, what I was hunting for in the beginning was the Hoyer Audi Sport. Uh, Sand, right. you're a bit of an Audi fan, right? You You have a bit of an Audi connection. Yeah, I drive an Audi. That's the only connection I have. <laughs> Well, I mean, mind you, before people get, you know, uh, the listeners get snobby all over. I think I'm snobby or something. It's a 10 year old Audi. I'm praying every day that nothing happens to that car from a reliability point of view. Okay. So you're, you're a typical Audi owner, right? Yeah. I, I, before I start the day, praying, I pray. <laughs> well, the 1980s Audi dominated rally, um, it had the iconic Quattro S1, you know, the yellow and white. Uh, livery it was really a golden era for the audi sport racing motor division oh yeah it changed um, the game in rallying so i mean yeah you gotta give them back yeah and in the 1980s there was a collaboration between hoyer and audi sport um which produced this you know line of watches uh they were lamania 5100 uh sports chronographs that they uh produced uh kind of mysteriously there wasn't uh a very wide release they have they, it's, it's a complete mystery how many they produced. Um, the best guesses are somewhere between 100 and 200. Um, so you know, how did you get one back then, right? Um, so I actually had to go jump into the forums and find out. And a guy in one of the forums, and, and I have it in, in the link here, uh, was saying Hoyer Audi Sport was commissioned by Audi Sport UK and David Sutton Motorsport Limited and imported solely by UK Hoyer importers, Presence of Bolton. These watches were shipped to Audi dealerships with a small stock retained and sold through Preston's of Bolton for about two months. So it's a very small window. It is believed that each of the Audi SWP team members received a Hoyer Audi Sport watch with notable owner and former world champion rally driver Hanu Mekala further supporting the claim. Uh, there were two dial variants. Uh, really just came down to the difference in hash marks of the 12-hour register. So really, you know, not, not a huge uh, difference between the two. And interestingly, the Audi Sport actually removed the 24-hour indicator at 12. That was kind of standard for Lamania 5100 movements. And they also removed, yeah, the, so day, to, yeah, they also removed the day window as well. So they yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the 5100 is very similar, or if not identical, in layout to the Vashu 7750, right? Um, um, the 369, in terms of the dial layout, I'm not talking about the way it operates. Am I wrong in saying that? Uh, yeah. So, 
No. Sorry, the uh, six, nine, and twelve. Sorry. Yeah, and also the the Lamania fifty one hundred had the the counting chronograph seconds hand. You know, the that's the only yes. That's that's which is which is yeah. huge difference. I mean, there there are companies that have modified the value seventy seven fifty to have that feature. I was not talking about more about the complication. I was talking more of the dial layout. The dial layout. Um, so the six, nine, the and twelve. And yes, the sub dials as well as the uh, the day and date complication at the three o'clock. I think there's some truth to that. Um, I'm trying to imagine what a SIN 144 looks like. It's been a while since I've worn it. Um, I think you're right. See, <laughs> <laughs> this this particular Audi Sport, like you mentioned, they removed the, the 12 o'clock uh, sub-dial. And the, the, yeah, the SIN 144 has the same, uh, sorry, 12, 6, and 9 sub-dial. Right. Um, yeah, so you're right about that. Yeah. Go yeah. On, right? But the SIN 142 has a very similar dial layout to the Audi Sport that you present here and you're talking about, right? The one that was worn in space. I see. Yes, it just has two sub dials. I mean, yeah, as far as that is concerned, yeah, true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they modified the Lamania fifty one hundred, you know, capability. Actually, modified it down, so it was only a date, and uh, obviously they removed that that twelve o'clock twenty four hour counter, uh, which right. showed it was day or day or night. Uh, interesting decision by Audi. But where the day was, they actually put the Audi Sport branding there in its place. So I discovered this watch for myself, obviously, uh, years ago. Hunting for it for many, many years. I think you and I have spoken about it. It's the Hoyer that I've always wanted. Um, in five years of hunting for one, so basically checking uh, eBay and you know any other watch site that I can find, I may have seen two come to the market. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very rare. But the interesting thing about it is, look, like a lot of other models, that specific case design, that that uh, kind of sharp case, the, I, I guess you would call it hexagonal kind of honeycomb case, let's just call it that, with the Lamania 5100 movement, was under, it was actually sold under multiple names, right? So Lamania itself had its own version of that specific watch. Right. Um, and... That that version is actually really attractive because it's almost identical to the Hoyer Sport as far as the colors, the layout, the hands, everything is similar. Um, and Arctos made one. I think Technos made one. And my company, the one that I got, was Dugina made one as well. Uh, the interesting thing about the Dugina I picked up is that it's actually PVD. So mm. it's a little bit more, uh, even more tactical looking uh, than even the Hoyer Sport, if you ask me. Um, yeah. And and they brought back the day and also the twelve o'clock twenty four hour indicator um, sub dial. So that's a full full Lamania fifty one hundred capability, full box box and set, uh, which was very unexpected and quite nice. Um, the one thing that uh, was a drawback to the one the specific one that I got was that the bracelet was a bit aged and stretched out, so I really couldn't really wear it. Um, but right. I was lucky enough to score a new old stock vintage PVD bracelet, um, steel, um, actually no links to it. There are no, no pin and collar, no way to separate it. Interesting. Yeah. You basically only have the micro adjust and I've got a pretty good fit, but it's a little bit of, it's still a little bit big on me, but, um, it's a very cool bracelet. I'll, I'll, I'll take some pictures and put it on the Instagram, but, uh, pretty pleased with it. I think it captures the spirit of the, the, uh, sport, even though it's a completely different watch, not completely different, but, you know, it's branded differently. It's not the same steel case. Um, and, and to the listeners, you know, 
I think the fact it was called Regina made it a bit more affordable relative to like to the, the two Audi Sport watches you saw online, right? The interesting thing is the Dugina was actually sold by the same guy. So there's one guy, he, he had an account on eBay called RW Wright or R Wright. He was right. selling watches out of Hong Kong. He had five Lamania 5100 chronographs. Wow. One of them was the Audi Sport. One of them was a Lamania chronograph, exactly of the Audi Sport, but not labeled Audi Sport. Dugina, and he had a couple of other ones as well. All right. basically the same case design and same base movement, different variations. Mm-hmm. I got, I found the guy too late to get the Oyer Sport. I was debating getting the Lamania branded one, which is almost identical. Right. That sold off. And really I was like, crap, I got to make a move here. I moved to the Dugina. And um, I don't know how this guy scored basically the whole slew of this line, um, but uh, it was really, you know, a pretty amazing listing. He had like all five next to each other. It was really cool. Um, but you know, I kind of regret not buying more of them to be honest. But uh, you know, the the issue with the Dugina was that it, you know it did need a servicing. So at the Lamania, well, 50- yes, let's talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> so the Lamania fifty one hundred movement. You and I, I think, we're under the impression that this is a universal movement, very easy to yeah. service. Not true. Not true. Not true. They. Um, at this stage in 2023, the parts and spares are pretty rare. Uh, my watchmaker actually was looking for one specific replacement part that I needed uh, because my issue was it wasn't holding much of a, a charge. Basically, you would wear it and put it down for two seconds or not shake your hand for a minute, dead. And wow, okay. he, knows, he diagnosed the problem, looked for a part for, I think, close to nine months, could not find this part, basically could not locate it. And he had to machine the part himself out of scratch, which is not. Wow. Yeah. My neighbor actually knows him. Um, he's a really skilled watchmaker, um, but you know, he had to do it out of basically, you know, raw material to get this part for me. So uh, not easy. If you don't have a watchmaker with that kind of capability, I don't know what you do with the Lamania 5100 movement um, unless you're lucky enough to get a spare. So that's which why is shocking. I mean, everyone, I mean, that I know of or or that I read, like the Lemania 5100 was used everywhere, right? Um, and to find it that... It was you... and it wasn't. I mean, Alistair, when we spoke to him, said that the Lemania 5100 was, even though it was such a u- ubiquitous movement, uh, and I'm talking about Alistair Gibbons, he did mention that they made it in certain tranches and some of them had small changes between each other. So it wasn't like how we think of like the Valju 7750 where you right. can just kind of swap in and out. I think there were still some variations between the movements. That's my, how I interpret what Alistair said. Um, and yeah, you know, I, as, as ubiquitous as we think it was, I don't think it really was that or is that right now. So okay. I know scoring spares for something that common shouldn't have been as hard as, you know, my watchmaker had it. So that's the kind of unfortunate uh, drawback to this movement. So if you have one, keep it in good shape, keep it serviced, and hopefully nothing breaks for a while. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a pretty, attra- pretty attractive watch. You know, with the lack of the 12 o'clock subdial and the chronograph seconds hand, and it, it, it makes it, definitely makes it 
look tactical for sure. Yeah, and I, I like the PVD actually. It's very eighties. Um, the drawback to PVD obviously is when you when you try to get a replacement bracelet, it's actually pretty tough to find a replacement PVD bracelet. Because mm. ones haven't aged well. I was lucky to find an, a Nas one that was in, was basically untouched since the nineteen eighties. So it looks pretty sharp. I'll put some pictures up on the gram, but um, so that's the tricky you... part to you know PVD in general. I think right. Now, when you got the watch finally, after a long, long search, where you almost considered donating donating an organ for a replacement part or a movement, um, how how does it feel like um on on the wrist? It's actually very light. It's very comfortable. Um, it's great. I I I I think it's a beautiful design. I mean, that's really what got me into it is the case design more than anything else. Um, I think it's a very unique case design. And that's why the Dugina kind of scratches the same pitch as the Hoyer Sport, even though it's not labeled Hoyer, uh, the Audi Sport, because it's not labeled Audi, but it has that 80s, mid-80s kind of look to it, the sporty chronograph look that I just love. It's kind of, you know, kind of scratches that itch for me. So very, very pleased with it. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you finally got it out of the shop. Yeah, it took, took the better part of two years. Um you know, you know, what an operation. Who knew? Chip shortage during 2022 to 2020 to 2022. Lamania 5100 shortage now. Yeah, that was the actual more dangerous shortage in America, if you ask me, was the Lamania 5100 movement shortage. Um, a lot of people were complaining about baby formula, all that other stuff. But, you know, not having <laughs> the replacement parts with Lamania 5100 really, I think, you know, put this country on edge. So, yeah, you were, lobbying, you were lobbying Congress. Like, listen. We need more Lamania 5100s. We we got to solve this. And by yes. the way, for uh for listeners of the podcast, I am uh I have RSV and so does my kids. So if I sound terrible, um that's the reason why. So forgive my scratchy throat. Um I So have- to listeners out there, Tommy just used this kid as as <laughs> And blamed his voice on this kid, you know, this, just just saying, putting it out there. This kid sponges up every single pathogen out there and basically just throws it right in my mouth. So, um, yeah, won't be the last time, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, excuse the voice. Um, well, uh, as long as we get you both back in full health and and um, you know back in the game, it's all that matters. So look at this. You know, I took months of derision over my Dugina, but look at you. You're so you softened up, Sanji. You're losing your edge. Uh, losing my edge. I, 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 you know what? It's, it's been a rough, rough time for you. You know, I, I feel do feel some sympathy more for your health than this Dugina that dilemma you dealt with. You know, I, I'm, I I'm so insulted by by your sympathy. I don't want it. All right. What's next, Sanji? <laughs> What's next? What do you got for me? All right, so I'm going to fast forward to 2023, and we're going to be talking about the Tag Heuer and the 60th anniversary chronograph. So as you are aware, um, just to give a little bit of a history lesson, the Carrera, which is arguably Tag Heuer's most famous model lineup. Is it really? Is it not the Otago? To me, it is. To me, it is. I, I mean, if I only asked you, if I asked you before we even started this talk about this watch before, what was what's the first model or brand within the Tag Heuer lineup that comes to your mind? 
Hoyer. Hoyer in general, not Ty Hoyer. Ty Hoyer or Hoyer, sure. I mean, yeah. Um yeah, I think I think either uh I mean you also have the square uh the Monaco the, square, the Monaco as well. You got the Monza. There's a couple. The Carreras, I mean, you're right though. Carrera is the most popular. So I'm not gonna argue with that. I'm glad you said the other chronographs and not like, you know, Aqua Racer or something. I would have hung up on you right See, now. That that that's a tag one. Like I don't even recognize the taglines. So Oh boy. All right, I'm I'm, I'm hipster. For me, it'll always be Hoyer. It'll always be Hoyer for me. All right, keep Hoyer. You're you're the uh, the person that the hipster that zigs and zags, you know, from modern uh, contemporary design, such as you. You picked up a Dugina instead of a Audi Sport Hoyer. Yeah, Sanj, I I bought a 35 year old watch and restored it. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, tell me about this Carrera. So, all right, so a little bit of a history lesson. The the Carrera is named after the Carrera Panamerica, which was an open road race in Mexico. It was approximately, you know, 3,500 kilometers. Uh, and, and it was between 1915 and 1954. And it was on a completed section of the Pan American Highway. And it was actually organized by Mexican government. So I guess to spend, you know, to promote, you know, the country and its new long road. Um, Nothing, nothing like a bunch of road debts to really promote the country. You know? That's what killed the competition, um, <laughs> pun intended. Um, it was a very dangerous race, and only a third of the team approximately finished and recorded 27 deaths. So it was basically canned, I think, in 1955, which, if I'm not mistaken, was around the same time as the tragic uh, Le Mans disaster. Um in uh was it by mercedes i think um, the car plotted the crowds and killed a bunch of people yes exactly so anyways how how did this connect with uh hoyer so jack hoyer at the time who was running the show for hoyer came to new, know about it during the 12 hours of sebring in 1962 and decided to name his next chronograph he he had this epiphany that he's going to name his next chronograph that he was working on Carrera so the idea of the Carrera it was a purely a racing focused race inspired by racing and meant for racing kind of watch where the it, it was mainly it had few things that it had to meet it had to be reliable it had to be rugged but it also had to be legible so only the things that was required to be on the dial was only there and anything else was taken out. So if you see a lot of the Carreras, you know, you only had the key things, you know, which was the chronograph functions um, and very little text. If anything, you'll probably just had like a Hoyer, the logo on it, and that's it. Very clean dial. Very clean, extremely clean, because, you know, back then you still relied on mechanical watches to time. So... It was released in 1963 in Basel. And then, you know, it's to me, it has been a staple in not only the Tag Heuer line, but also in the chronograph world. You know, you have obviously your Omega Speedmasters and, and the Daytonas from Rolex. But then to me, I would put Tag Heuer or Heuer Carrera up there as well, because it's been so synonymous with uh, chronographs. 
I do. So for- I mean, I do have to say, just a sidebar, that the modern Pereira chronograph, to me, is we've talked about this way too large, wears too big, and I think that they would be a lot better served going back to this platform, which is a thinner, more classic sizing. Because the Speedmaster is the same size as it always was. Like, why can't the Carrera stay the same size as it always was? That's my two cents. So there's a few of them that I like, right? Like, um, the size is the only thing that puts me off. Like, they're what, 40? Um... 44, 45 millimeters in diameter. They're also pretty high. Like they're just not wearable. Like I, I have a, I have a coworker who has one, and I've tried it on, and it's just way too bulky. Like I, I just can't. It's just not. Gotcha. It's just not realistic. And I, I like the way they look. Even the modern Carreras, I think, look attractive. Um, but as far as sizing goes, I, I think the vintage ones were perfect, right? and this reissue is, is perfectly sized. Yeah, so it's a, it's a callback to a specific uh, reference for the 60th anniversary. So it is a limited edition, but it, it's a callback to the reference 2447SN. And it's basically like a panda dial with three subdials at the 3, 6, and 9 o'clock. Um, it's got a white dial, and the chapter ring has like these one-fifth second markings. And if you scroll down, we're referencing the Hodinki article, but if you look around, it's it's very faint. But if you look at the chapter ring just around the dial, um, it's got the seconds markings. You know, back then, like I said, it was meant for timing um, laps or, mm. or, or, or yeah. autocrosses. So it was in, necessary to have that finite amount of markings. Very nice. And I, and I, I like, the, I like the, the, the crystal as well. It's like that got that domed kind of crystal that i just yeah love. yeah and and it's a very wearable watch it's 39 millimeters um in diameter oh, and yeah it and then it's only 14.5 millimeters thickness so it's it's a fairly wearable watch um with a modern movement so it's got what they call the hoyer 02 and it's got 80 hours power reserve um the chronograph has got a column reel with vertical clutch and it's it's got quite a few amount of jewels, thirty three, uh, which is quite interesting. But one of the king, things going back to the dial is 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 the lack of uh, text. So you basically have Carrera and the classic Hoyer logo. Yeah. And on the six o'clock register, you just have Swiss, and everything else is meant for timing. There's no like six lines of lettering like you see on like a Daytona or whatever maybe. Um, so it's really focused on on the time. So other bits and pieces of this watch, it's got applied hour markings with the 12 o'clock being like a, a double marker to kind of indicate that it's the 12 o'clock. I love that. And, it's very three-dimensional, which I really like. It kind yeah, of it's, yeah, it's very, you know, I wouldn't want to say vintage, but it's like that retro vibe. It's because it's referencing an older um, Carrera. But even so... It's got small circular uh, luminescent markers around each hour just outside near I the like, chapter. Yeah, it, and they're like kind of like a gold or skin colored. I don't even know how to describe that color, but it's a little bit on the black. creamish side, not like Fortina cream, but like a little bit on the creamish side based on the pictures. Um, yeah, and even the dial, like the main dial, it looks if you look closer at the pictures, it's got like a brush finish to it. Um, so 
it's it's very attractive i must say and you know it comes in a strap a leather calfskin racing inspired strap and it's also got some uh, an exhibition case back you know which i know you love um it's not a swimming watch i'm, I'm fine with it I'm fine it's with not it. a swimming watch i see um, but yeah, it's it's unfortunately limited edition, but it's available for around sixty six hundred euro. Jeez. So about like almost you know seven thousand dollars. I think what it's gorgeous. You... I mean, let me just tell you right off the bat, this is the kind of Hoyer that I'm into. Um, the vintage Hoyer, I, I really think, are beautiful designs, and um, like I said, you know, if if the modern career was sized this way. I, I would be a lot into it. I think visually the modern one is nice too, um, but I just find it to be way too bulky. They're going for like a whole Breitling kind of bulk thing. I don't know what they're going for, but. Uh, right. I mean, the only differences with Breitling with their Navitimers, they were always large, right? They were never, they probably had different sizes, but you always associated the Navitimer to be a large watch. The Carrera was not necessarily a large watch. Yeah. Maybe 39 millimeters um back in the day was large um but in today's standard it's more on the smaller size and and definitely yeah. more wearable size no i i love it I, I love the sunburst kind of uh dial the the silver um the loom plots matching the loom and the hands i think it's yeah it's hard. it's very well proportioned of a look yeah yeah and to me, you can actually wear this off in different guises. You know, if you're in as a, you can probably pull this off as a dress watch because it, it's very definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's 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 got it doesn't have too much of uh, of it, it's got a simplicity to it, so it doesn't have too much of gaudiness or any extras that you know might come with a sports watch. So it's extremely clean, and you can you know. Wear this as well, you know, if you take out the straps and put it in the NATO, it makes it look tactical or too watchy. Sanch, this or a speedy? Go. You know what? That's, you know, my heart will go towards a speedy. Oh, yeah. I knew you'd come back home. But then it'll make a U-turn and pick up a Fortis. <laughs> so, yeah. No, um... An attractive uh, watch, and I think they did a really good job with the 60th anniversary. As a limited edition watch, $6,6500. Okay, a little bit on the steeper side, but hey, it's a limited edition. Um, it's a very attractive watch. It's a Carrera, so if you have the money, go for it. Justified. Yeah, justified. All right, Sanch. I like it. I'm a big fan. Uh, you got my vote there. All right. All right. Now we're going to do something that I know you're against, but we had to do it. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Seiko Prospect Speed Timer. All right. Oh, gosh. This time it's the mechanical. It's the SRQ045. It's the full black take on the uh, Speed Timer mechanicals that, that Seiko released last last year. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about uh, was the, the first release was what? The white tile, right? Yeah, they had a white and a black. The white was the more historical one. So that was a mechanical speed timer that was modeled on the, <clears throat> sorry, the 1964 split second stopwatch that they used at the Olympics. 
Right. They took that base design and they basically iterated on it. Uh, so similar to that one, case is 42.5 in diameter, 50 millimeters in length. Um, it's 15.1 millimeters high, so it's a bit it's a bit tall. <clears throat> and in-house, you've got the caliber 8R46 uh, movement, uh, mechanical chronograph. You know, everything's consistent. The design changes versus the older one from last year is they've got asymmetrical subdial hands, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I just noticed that. And right. it, it doesn't stick out at first, but then when you take another look at it, a second look, you see a different design between the three and the nine. Yeah, yeah. And um, you'll also notice that the minutes are marked in fives opposed to the old design. Oh, yeah. Ten. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, it's small iterations. I think that gives it a more of a sleek or tactical look. Um, 600 watches, 3,000 euros. That's what it's going for. Um, not much else to talk about. I mean, we talked about this line already. Um, Listen, the only reason why you're like breezing through this is because I'm you're thinking I'm making you breeze through this. If you had it your way, you would dedicate a whole podcast episode to this. I This is actually not my favorite line because to me, it looks too much just like a stopwatch with lugs on it. And I don't that's really the point of the watch. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I just don't care for it. It's just, uh, it's, not, it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite. But okay. I think it's cool in, in this execution because you got the red, you got pops of red, uh, sorry, the pops of red at, at five. Is it red or is it orange? It reads red to me. Is it orange? Maybe it's orange. You might be right, actually. It's RSP might be colorblind. Yeah, maybe. But um, regardless, um, so I think it's a really interesting of a watch, and I actually kind of like it. Um, so the pushers, yes, it makes it, it does stick out, the, the chronograph pushers, but I would say that's more to capture the stopwatch look of a design, you know, and it's got that definite pusher feel. I mean, I haven't obviously worn the watch or tried the watch on, but I, I would expect something to have like a a good mechanical feel when pressing that. Um, it does look like I a big watch. I, I, think, I think that would be the drawback is it, it does probably wear a bit bigger than. Yeah. Yeah. If if I had it my way, I would actually make this watch a bullhead, and and make it more of a classic stopwatch. I think that would give it a really cool look. I'm sure Seiko has it, you know, has it in their back pocket to do that eventually. You know, yeah. I'll be surprised. Just rotate the dial. Yeah, well, all you have to or do. Or the movement yeah. too. Yeah. All you if there's one drawback, if there's one drawback, I, if I had to critique that, I wish Seiko did not do, was actually throwing the Prospects logo on it. Yeah, I, I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. Because everything about the watch, you know, is a callback to the original original speed timer, right? And then you add this modern looking Prospects logo to it. I don't mind the X. I, I Some people hate it, but I really, I think it looks fine. I don't know. It depends on the watch for me. I mean, for like a dive watch that they have in their dive watch collection, it's a, no issue whatsoever. But on like a retro looking kind of watch, I'm not so sure. You know, if you want to put it in the rotor and make it an exhibition case back, perfectly fine with that. But, you know, everything about this watch screams that it's calling back to like the original design. And you add that, it's like, it doesn't work with the rest, in my opinion. 
very specific requirements for that accent. All Listen, right. you have the same requirement for the Hamilton logo. It's true. I do. I have I have very strong feelings about that logo. Um, uh, so is this a thumbs up or thumbs down? Where do you sit? Thumbs up, but is it? What, what do you think about the price though? Three thousand euro. I know. Just think about. Is this a limited edition? Um, it is limited to six hundred pieces. Okay, so just like the uh, Tag Heuer sixtieth anniversary. Which yeah, is also I mean, six hundred pieces. It's um, a mechanical chronograph, dude. You know. So yeah, no, I, I, I think. I think it's worth it. Uh, but it's like I said, it's a, this is the power of branding, right? I mean, I actually think it's worth it. Um, but a lot of people might not because they'll say, "Oh, it's you're paying that much for a Seiko again," right? We talked about this many a time. I, I think of your brother, whose birthday it is today, saying exactly that. Um, <laughs> I'm not paying whatever amount of money for a Seiko, and you can put any price point. He's going to be like, "That's too much," right? Which is absurd, and. You and I should make fun of your brother a little bit more, but um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's also now, like not a Carrera, for example. Yeah, but again, it's power branding, right? This is just as good as a Carrera, right? It's a mechanical chronograph. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, holding you back from, you know, um, its capability. Um, well, I mean, it's automatic. Not as accurate, Let me take that back. It, yeah, so it's not as accurate, and it doesn't. I wouldn't say it's not as accurate. It probably is not as accurate. And it definitely doesn't have the power reserve. This one looks like it's got only 45 hours. Um, but at the same time, this is half what's, the price what's the of Hoyer have? 80 hours. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, but then again, this is half the price, 3,000 euro or $3,000. See, when you get a speedy, you don't think about power reserve that much because you're winding the watch every day. So... No, you're worrying about other things, such as if the crystal pops off. Okay, let's talk about this. You've been bringing this up a lot. (laughs) One astronaut accused the Speedmaster of failing. That was Dave Scott on Apollo 15. Okay. NASA has no record of the Apollo Speed, uh, the Speedmaster failing. It's a government cover up, man. So, Dave Scott also wore a Belova during that mission unofficially. So I'm not pointing fingers, but all I'm saying is you're going off just one man's word. And the Listen, government has never... NASA done. qualified, all right? You can't go below 30 me- beyond 30 meters water resistance, all right? Name me uh, a person who's who's gone swimming with a Speedmaster. Uh, actually, I there are people who say they do swim with a Speedmaster. I think it's insane, but yes. See, also, you got to keep in mind, every... Apollo astronaut splashed down in the ocean. Okay. So it was in some way, degree or, or shape, you know, exposed to water. You know, yes, I agree. And they probably went training, you know, astronaut training with the Speedmaster on their wrist. I, I give you that. And I'm sure after 30 meters, it's a fine watch. But I'm pretty sure that the main reason why the government wanted their Speedmasters back after every mission is so that they can cover it up. All right. You, you, you become a full blown <laughs> conspiracy theorist. All right. I'm adding a lot of conspiracy theories to the Speedmaster. All made up on the fly as I speak. Made up on the fly. It shows. All right. So right, you're gonna get the fly swatter and swat. That's right. Swat swat that away. So uh Seiko, thumbs up, thumbs down. Where where are we? I at? would say this is a thumbs up, you know. <laughs> I normally cringe when you talk about uh Seiko, but 
I do fall for a lot of their watches and they do make excellent stuff. There you go. All right. Next. What do you got? All right. You ready? You ready? This might be a slightly controversial one. I wouldn't say controversial, but a mixed bag. Mixed bag. Okay. So the one I'm going to talk about is from Omega. And it's the Omega Speedmaster Super Racing. What? Right? Yeah, that's right. So it's got something that is, to me, something a bit of, uh, I won't say a revolution, but it's it's definitely raised the bar in mechanical chronograph and, and watch timing and as well as accuracy because it's incredibly accurate now. So the one unique thing with this particular watch is that it's got something called the spirate system yeah and this is i'm I'm paraphrasing what was you know talked about with, with, within this article and omega themselves but what is the system it's basically a, a method to fine-tune the rate of the watch movement it, it combines several items um, one of them being a new hairspring made of silicone and uh, an eccentric tunic system with a snail cam acting on a flexible blade um oh. what this does is you can really focus on the regulation to a level of 1.1 seconds per day and what does this all mean at the end of the day so you know omega has their own certification called the meta certification right yeah yeah this beats even the meta certification so it, I believe the meta certification is plus or minus two seconds, or that might be the Rolex um, superlative chronometer certified specifications. But long story short, this new system improves the accuracy to plus or minus zero to two seconds per day. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, incredible. So it it it's all these little systems putting together to get something that's incredibly accurate so omega's planning you know more likely gonna you know introduce the system into a lot of their other lineups but the first one they introduced to was this omega speedmaster super racing so it's more of their um auto racing focused kind of speedmasters you know even though the speedmaster was designed for auto racing but it's the two register speedmaster with the Speedmaster racing line yeah yeah so three o'clock and the nine o'clock have the sub dials and you have a date complication at the six o'clock but omega's made a few unique uh, uh features for this kind of watch first of all is the dial it's a sandwich dial it's made up of three layers so you have the outer layer which I is okay yeah so the outer layer contains all of the hash marks and the indices, and I believe also the the border of the chronograph registers. And then you have the honeycomb mesh inside. And then you have another layer on the other end of the watch. Oh. So it gives it a little bit of a unique 3D look. So like a sandwich panel, in a sense. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the case... what, do you, what do you think of the honeycomb, honeycomb yellow... Uh, for the hands and the hash and everything, yellow and black being the. I like it. It's it's it makes it definitely a bit more uh, racing inspired. If yeah. if I were to re relate this to something that's racing, um, I would probably connect it with like say the uh, first one that comes to my mind is the Jordan F one racing team during the nineties when they were sponsored by 
Benson and Hedges. So like in the late nineties, there was this yellow and black um, yeah. combination. The other one is probably even like Renault when they came back into Formula One in 2016. Yeah. Um, the original, you know, they brought back the yellow color as well. Um, and this seems to like have that fitting uh, theme to it. Um, so it's a bit more modern. It's definitely not retro for sure. And yeah, it, it very unique of a watch. Um, it's the rest of the, the watch, the case and everything is part of the, the Speedmaster racing series. Yeah. So the so apart, you know, the movement is the, is based on um the caliber nine nine two zero, but it's got the spirit system. So and the bracelet looks like it's a three eight six one uh speedmaster bracelet that they brought back, which which I think people liked. There's good feedback on it. Yeah, and and I it's got a micro adjusting clasp, and also I believe it also comes with a NATO strap as well to accommodate yeah. it. Which and is that um that Marie Nationale single stroke to the middle kind of strap, right? The Correct. No, not Marie Nationale, just a NATO. I, I apologize. But just yeah, and it's got like the sawtooth serrated looking um, design. Yeah. The interesting that... thing is the, the, the date in the um, in the um, the font of the date window is actually kind of italicized. They, they look like it's kind of leaning. Yes, there, there is a there is a reason for that and it's to i think i need to look it up again but it is calling back to uh something related to the history of the watch um it does have an exhibition case back um but you know what it's a racing watch and the movement is very well finished if there's a picture of it on monochrome watchers um so yeah, it's a very attractive watch. Now the big question is the price. It is on the expensive side. It is ten thousand two hundred euro. Insane. Okay. But hear me out. The for the performance it provides in terms of accuracy. Get the hell out of here. What? Are, are you crazy? No. Sorry. No. <laughs> No. Oh my gosh. Okay. Why? Speedmaster shouldn't be this expensive. I, I think that's insane. I, I think it should be more accessible than 10,000 euro. That's that's nuts to me. It will come out to other watches. It's the first one to have this. So it will be cheaper in the future for sure. Innocent Sanjeev, you know that they're going up market. Okay. It's not going to get cheaper. It's never going to get cheaper, brother. This is it. All right. Get, the get used to these prices, all right, brother. This not it's not happening, all right. Hey, listen, I know uh, Daytona's like what thirteen grand. Yeah, I mean that's who they're competing with, right? I mean, yeah. I, what, what was that Hoyer going for? Six, seven grand? What was it? Yeah, but does it go to zero to two seconds per day accuracy? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna say something that's really perverse, all right? But don't. Okay, here hopefully, we go. Hopefully, I won't be mocked for this, but like, it, you know, so what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you can get a quartz watch that's like super, super accurate, but like, you're not gonna pay ten grand for that, right? Okay, so you get a Are Casio. You, would you? Board? I mean, would you? I mean, you can get uh, there's there's a Seiko, uh, nine oh. quartz, uh, super accurate quartz, super quartz that you can get for. 
two grand or a grand. I mean, it's the most probably the most accurate watch you could wear. You could wear for a couple grand. Would you? Would you? Would you go get that? I mean, is that up your alley? No. Why not? It's super accurate. It is super accurate, and I'm sure there's a lot of technology put into it. But there's something always magical about having a mechanical only system be this accurate. You get a Casio keyboard, I'll get a Steinway piano. All right. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, I look. I jokes aside, I do like the Speedmaster Racing line. It's not my favorite, but I think it's an interesting line within the whole Speedmaster, um, you know, uh, menu of options. Um, would I get one? I don't know. I think I'd probably go uh, go for uh, maybe a Mark II. I, I think the Mark II racing is more interesting than this, in all honesty. I just like the different case design. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, no. Okay, so if do, would I get the watch? No, but would I, do I appreciate what Omega has brought to the table? Absolutely. Um, I'm pretty sure, you know, this movement can go into the Mark II. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what they do with the movement. I mean, I I don't I, I don't know if this is going to be something that they're going to roll out everywhere, but it's an interesting you know thing that they tried for this movement for this for this model. It's innovative. It's you know re in a sense revolutionary because it's it's really raised the bar. So I mean, yeah. I mean, I. I, I do appreciate really appreciate what they've done. Um and I, it would be really cool to see this in a like a like a Mach 2 or a Speedmaster 57. Or you yeah. know what? Throw it in the professional, all right? No, the professional needs to be in its own mechanical kind of separate situation. Right? It's gotta Listen. be on a pedestal, right? Part of the charm <laughs> is that you can't swim with it. Part of the charm is it's not fully accurate. Part of the charm is you have to wind it up every day and you forget to wind it and it's dead. That's the charm, all right? Don't come with all this BS. <laughs> you you talk you talk like as if you're you're driving a 10-year-old German car, all right? And here I am. Basically, a basically a Speedmaster professional is that Audi that you're driving, all right? You're hoping it just makes it another year and you don't need to get in service. Yeah, that's true. I mean... <laughs> I always pray that nothing happens when I take it in for service. So, yeah. Um, so this is more of a thumbs down, but you appreciate the watch. Thumbs up. No, I, I, I think it's an interesting design. You know, it's it's not for me. You know, for me, Speedmaster is is the space program. So, you know, the racing really doesn't do it for me. Um, I don't know. I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a cool one off. You know, I don't know if I really want a yellow. It's the uh, whole yeah. Speedmaster started off in racing, all right? Totally understand, but, you know, obviously it did other things. Well, I like, like the black and white. Them. I like the black and white signs. I like the professional line. I am a professional. I don't wear a watch with yellow hash marks. I don't believe in that, all right? All right. Okay. I'm an, I'm an adult. Go on. You're, you're a stickler. That's what it is. That's right. I'm a, I'm a classicist, all right? Keep it real. Yeah. Keep it real. All right. So we talked about a few chronographs that have been released. Now, shall we go on to watch a bike? All right, Sanch. What do you got? Wait All right. Before we go on, before we go on, what's what's your pick amongst the, the bunch here? It would probably you pick one, right? It'll probably be the Hoyer. The the Carrera 60th anniversary. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, my picture. So, if I were to rate all the watches we talked about here, so it would be the Hoyer first. Yeah. And, and this is just from personal aesthetic. What pleases my eye? Yes. Yeah, Hoyer first, Seiko second, Omega third, and Dugina dead last. Oh my gosh! The Dugina wasn't supposed to be part of this conversation. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, so that hit home. That really hit home. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't the blood that. boils. <clears throat> I really didn't care for that. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Um, the Hoyer, definitely my top pick. Speedmaster, second for me. The Seiko, you know, it's fine. It's not not my favorite. What you buying? What do you got? What do you got for me, Sand? You disappointed me. The one I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about is the Hamilton Intramatic Chronograph. And it's from available on Joma Shop for $1,435. This one has got the Milanese bracelet and it's the reverse panda. And, you know, you and I like this intramatic. I mean, we always talk about the panda version, but even the reverse panda is attractive too. No, this is the one to get. I actually like the reverse panda better. Um, <laughs> it's got the classic Hamilton logo at the 12 o'clock. For you, Tommy, and um, it's it's a fairly clean look. I mean, it's got a tachymeter chapter, a tachymeter scale in the chapter ring, but apart from that, it's not much from to clutter going on in the dial. It just has a mechanical lettering on the just above the six o'clock and two sub dials. Love the older logo. Love the reverse panda. Um, what's not to love here? Um, I also think it's actually thinner because it's mechanical, not automatic, because you don't have that rotor. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, everything is good here. This is this to me is the intramatic to pick up. This is the specific model. There's a couple okay. iterations. This is the one to get. Now, now that you say that, now that we talk about this watch, right? Even though we're not critiquing the watch or whatsoever because it's watch buying, where would you put this in all the chronographs we talked about now? Um, I don't think it changes anything. Maybe it's tied with the Seiko. We'll put this above the Seiko. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, Sam. I mean, for such a classy look and and something you know that is an intramatic for fourteen hundred dollars, it's a good deal. Yeah, I think the price is great. I I do I and I love the the reverse panda look so. Um, you know, all good things. I, I'm I'm on board with it. Yeah, and even the case size is 40 millimeters. Um, so it's very wearable. It yeah. does look a little thick, uh, but you know what? It's not that bad. I gotta imagine it's it's thinner than the automatic version. So the mechanical is the way to go. And I also think yeah. mechanical chronographs have a kind of charm to them. So I'm all for the mechanical. I think this is you made a good pick here. Appreciate it. This is a honest commentary from Tommy. You know, very hard to, to, to find. I am under the weather. I, I My resistance is down. I'm being honest. All right, Tommy. So now we're going to go on to streaming gold. So the one I'm going to talk about is from Real Engineering. And if you don't follow Real Engineering and you are a bit of a geeky person, I highly encourage you follow because they the channel does a really great job in in detailing certain 
mostly aerospace and aviation oriented kind of themes, but it does talk about other things as well, such as nuclear fusion and things like that. But the one that they recently released is the insane engineering on the F-35B. And it's a very good summary of what all they had to do to make this um, short vertical takeoff and landing um, jet possible. So really cool, highly encourage it. Um, and yeah, give it a watch. It's, I think, one of the most expensive fighter jet programs in history. I think it is the most expensive one. It's a trillion it dollar is. program, something like that. It's, it's so expensive. Let's not, let's put the cost aside from a technical standpoint. It is a bit of achievement because it's impressive. Yeah. I mean, as a pure dogfighter, it's probably not as impressive as like an F 15, ironically. Um, I think they've done. It's a different kind of jet. I mean, I'm just you know speaking from an arm networking that really makes it special. Yeah, it's the other technology that's does make it special. You know, it doesn't need to go Mach two point five or whatever it does. Um, I mean, the F fifteen is a phenomenal airframe. That's for sure. I mean, what forty two years old? Yeah, still going strong. So impressive. And speaking about stealth fighters, the next streaming gold was about the. Inside story of the Chinese spy balloon kill by the F-22, which is the first kill by the F-22, ironically. Who would have thought it would have been a balloon, but it is. Um, and it's, it's a video by Ward Carroll, who's an ex-F-14 pilot, so he knows what he talks about. And um, not so straightforward, these, the balloon saga. Um, <clears throat> when the F-22 shot that down, it was actually probably one of the highest if not the highest air-to-air kill in history. They shot down... Yeah, because this was higher than the max altitude of um, the F-22 and most fighter jets. I think they go up to 65,000 feet max, and this was, what, 68,000 feet? Yeah, so the F-22 was actually aiming up and shooting uh, when it released the AIM-9 inert missile at the balloon. Um, Yeah, they didn't want to, you know blow up the the you know put a charge or 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 anything like that on the missile right because it would basically vaporize the entire balloon yeah and he also explains why they didn't use the gun which i was also wondering you know why not just use one burst from the gun and bring down the balloon but there's a good reason so it's a very interesting video quite technical from a fighter pilot standpoint but uh definitely worth the watch if you're into it um you know it's an i mean i haven't seen this particular episode but i would assume even at the using a gun it's very difficult to aim you know considering you're still ways off from the balloon from an altitude standpoint right yeah so i think the issue is the gun's range you you have to be fairly close to use it yeah and the gun obviously is an auto cannon so you're going to be it's more like a shotgun right you're going to be shooting a number of shells at the balloon so no guarantee that in the spread of fire that you're not going to hit any of the electronics and just knock the balloon out so yeah i mean if you're a fighter pilot like me playing call of duty you know i just spray and pray as you're well aware when we played um battlefield a few times together sanj is a mix of either a passive pacifist nonviolent uh, gandhi type or you know kind of a depressed um suicidal type uh out to get shot at every two minutes so yeah you know I, i've seen you play sanch um mixed bag right 
a little bit of A, a little bit of B. That's what makes me so successful in the game. Well, <laughs> successful in dying most of the time. I just want to add time. that. Most of the time. Hey, listen, I go there to cover you, okay? Ironic, because there's a video of me actually saving your life, okay? On <laughs> okay, me actually coming to rescue you when you're getting shot. But anyway, um, so yeah, check out the uh, F-22 Chinese spy balloon kill video. Um, pretty interesting take. Obviously, the guy knows what, is, what he's talking about. Um, pretty informed uh, take on it. And speaking of pilots and fighter pilots, Sanders, closing notes. All right. Um, this is actually on the Tutima military chronograph, which is probably the first watch that you and I have been talking about, right? Since we the watch that directly. started it all. So That's yeah, right. no, I mean, this is the one that we always talked about in the beginning. Then <laughs> you got me excited into the watch game. I mean, I always had like this affinity towards watches, but you just brought me in thanks to this watch because you always wanted a Tutima. Yeah, so specifically, it's the Reference 798 chronograph. It was released in 1984. Um, got the contract for the German Air Force and then the other NATO, uh, some other NATO members as well. In 1983, <clears throat> so the year before, the British Royal Navy replaced its stock of automatic dive watches with, uh, you know, the famous Rolexes, the 5513, the mill subs with quartz dive watches from CWC. And 1984, the same year that Tutima came out, Seiko introduced the um, quartz chronographs that replaced uh, the mechanicals that uh, RAF piles for. So really, the Tutima is the last mechanical chronograph that was issued to, um, you know, servicemen, you know, fighter pilots. Um, and really, um, you know, the, the reason that this came under the wire was battery life the german government really was uh, unsure about quartz batteries they wanted to stick to something proven like a mechanical movement um did they have any concern with like electromagnetic interference or anything like that not that they not that they mentioned not that they mentioned um you know the article the, says the that fear one, of losing battery at any point in time you know unless you do a health check on the battery itself every after every mission which not sure if that happens, but a mechanical, you're more guaranteed to say, okay, if I wind it back up, everything comes back online again. Most quartz, I mean, watches have that stutter thing where you, your watch will stutter a little bit and let you know that your battery's low. So it shouldn't be a mystery, but... You won't want that when you're <clears throat> flying, right? So Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, uh, one theory is that the government didn't like the idea of using a quartz battery, you know, quartz battery movement. Um, you know, the, the author thinks really that the qualifications came from West Germany in 82 before suitable quartz, you know, movement chronograph was available. So it just happened to be that, you know, Totima was in the race before the quartz chronograph was available to replace it. So anyway, it's an interesting article. Uh, I, you know, Totima is one of my favorite, uh, you know, chronographs. Um, it's what got me into the, the watch game, even though I never got one. Um, Right now, looking at it, I think they're way too big. I don't think I could actually wear one, but um, I still think they're really beautiful watches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a very nice, attractive, tooltastic watch. And, you know, Tutima made some other thoughtful um, modifications or, or maybe additions to the watch. For example, the chapter ring around the dial, right? It's It's got uh, an hour marking for every hour up till 12. 
And, you know, most people would think like, hey, you know, why would they put a tachymeter scale? Well, these jets go like Mach 2.5. They go well beyond any tachymeter scale, right? So it didn't make sense to have that. So yeah. they put something else that was a bit more mission oriented um, that they can use to track time. The other one are, you know, the pushers. The pushers are very unique. Um, they're these slender, long, like more integrated into the cage kind of like style, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, it's easier on the gloves when you're wearing gloves and everything to, exactly. to activate it. It was it was designed that way so you don't catch on anything with into the traditional pushers, you know. So right, and there were like several flavors. Like there was one with rubber pushers, and there was one with um, you know, solid metal pushers. And I heard or read somewhere like the rubber ones would be a bit more iffy, you know, over time, and it'll be wear out faster obviously than the metal ones but i don't know i mean i don't have a team on myself so yeah i mean the interesting thing is these are available time to time on ebay um, they're attractive watches i i if you want a really cool military issued chronograph i would say grab a Tatima. it's a beautiful watch yep. and possibly the last service watch so there you go there you go all right, Sanch. Last uh, article today on closing notes is about a, you know, this is the 20th anniversary of the Columbia space disaster, the shuttle, you know, uh, tragedy. Yeah, I remember this uh, tragedy live, you know, I remember, I remember watching, watching it, it live too. Yeah, yeah. And um, after what happened, you know, there was a review board with NASA and they actually had a a set of contingency plans or things that, you know, they thought about after the fact to say, what could we have done differently? Mm -hmm. And really it involved the unique situation where Atlantis was actually getting ready for a flight. And the idea was to use Atlantis as a rescue space shuttle to inspect the yeah. in Columbia and if need be, remove the crew or, you know, conduct repairs to save the shuttle. Um, right. Really, really interesting article. Um, if you're into space flight and, you know, kind of thinking through problems, they kind of talk about, you know, what that scenario would have looked like. Um, it's really sad that um, NASA didn't take it seriously enough at the time to consider it a rescue mission that they, they gambled. Um, right. I mean, I only briefly went through the article. I haven't finished it reading it myself, to be honestly speaking. But what was the readiness state of Atlantis? Was that the article specified that? Was it ready to be launched? And, you know, you also have to consider the risk factor of potentially losing another crew. Yeah, no, they, they mentioned that. And they said that, you know, they would have to accelerate the preparation for Atlantis. They would have to scrap the mission profile. And um, basically, Atlantis, so basically it came down to Columbia had 30 days with okay. existing, you know, uh, CO2 scrubbers, which was the real limit on the crew being up in space. Um, they had 30 days. So they could get Atlantis up in orbit within the 30 days, um, but it, it would be, you know, one of the fastest preparation times for the shuttle ever. Right. And they would have to send a minimum crew of four to risk on, on, on Atlantis to go after Columbia. Um, and then, you know, decide what to do next. Um, so definitely not an easy thing to do. There would have to be a lot of firsts. Like I think the, one of the big firsts would just be the, in the day a shuttle is launched, the two hours before launch, there's actually a massive data upload 
uh, into the computer, the targeting computer, to get the shuttle to orient itself and fly itself by program to its destination, whether it's a space, right. whether it's a space station, whatever. Um, for so for Atlantis to do this, they would have to basically do one of the biggest data uploads ever, two hours before launch, to get it ready to intercept Columbia for the the rescue mission. So. Yeah, um, I mean, this is not one some first like, among many, you know, that they'd have. Yeah, to this, yeah. yeah, this is not like some Michael Bay story where like the pilots go cowboy and and find no. the shuttle. No. You know, they this this takes a lot of preparation. And, it's extremely and, and, difficult. Yeah, and it's it's a very technical thing to do. Um, and you know what it came down to is when they did the 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 um review of the launch for Columbia, they did notice the foam strike and they went to a ma mathematical model and the model basically said there's less risk. So, you know, they didn't really pursue anything more than that. Um, if memory serves me right, they didn't do a, a spacewalk to check, a, do a visual inspection, right? They did not. They did not. No. Yeah. They relied on this mathematical model. Um, and, you know, I also think that had they known and did they realize too late, what could you do about it? Not much anyway, you know, so. I don't yeah, know. I mean, that is one of the, the the faults of the design of the space shuttle, right? Like not only just these tiles, which were very complicated to produce and install on the shuttle. And mind you, they're amazing pieces of technology and don't get me wrong, but there was no uh, redundancy in case of this happened. You know, how are you going to get back? Because yeah. if I recall the original yeah. shuttle design, right? There were even talks of putting an escape pod or hatch or system, but that due to expense and, and cost, it was abandoned, right? They had ejection seats planned, uh, but they abandoned it for cost. Um, you know, the problem with the shuttle is, you know, we've talked about this. It's like, you're basically launching next to a huge tank and alongside the tank, not on top of the tank. So. Exactly. It, that, that itself is a huge risk. That's the problem. In Apollo, you know, you had a massive rocket and a huge tanks, but the astronauts were on top of everything. So time, you know, things turn, you can get out. But Well, not just that. It had an escape procedure and an escape rocket at the tip, right? SLS, yeah. The, the self-launch yeah. system, yeah. Now, you can't do that with, with, with the shuttle, right? So you're, you're alongside the propellant. So if anything goes wrong, you're, you're finished. So yeah, uh, and especially when you have solid rocket boosters of when they go, they go. I mean, when I go. mean by go, when they're lit off, you there's no way of stopping them from yeah, shutting down. Yeah, you can't. And and besides that is you know the foam you know that's that's lining the tank. It's because it's 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 a cryogenic tank. You know it has to remain cold and protected from temperature variation. So that foam yeah is because required. of the fuel, right? The fuel and and. That foam routinely fell off and hit the hit the orbiter. It's happened multiple times, but you know this was the time that was fatal, unfortunately. So yeah, this was a big article. Piece of, Definitely yeah. uh, give it a read, and uh, um, it's sad that you know these alternatives weren't considered. But um, it's interesting what 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 may have been. Excellent. So I believe that's the end of the episode, Tommy. Yeah. No. That I think that's it. Um, uh, Great to cover a new watch alert, even if it's about two, three years late. Um, and you berate me for being late to record a podcast, all right? 
you brought in a watch that you bought two, three years ago, and you're talking about it now. All right, this this is ridiculous. It was a labor of love, Sanj, getting this watch even up to shape to to do this. Okay, so I I'm I'm not sorry at all. You know, covered it. Vintage cars were restored faster than this watch. All right, that's true. I I have one more new watch alert to cover, um, but that's for next time. So, all right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Land Jam Podcast. Excuse my terrible voice. It is what it is. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, give us a like on Apple iTunes. We really could use it. Uh, get you know, gets more people into the podcast. And uh, until we catch you next time, take care.